1: Hey, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program aptly named Crosswalk. It's the intersection of Christian faith and Christian living. This is the program where doctrine meets duty and belief meets behavior. This is the program, well, with you in mind, where we try to ask and find answers to the questions that you care the most about, questions about God, questions about the historical Jesus, questions about the Bible, questions about world views and world religions. We talk about the past which is history, we talk about the future which is prophecy, but we also talk about the present and what's happening in this great big world. And if you'd like to join me on the program, it's 303 873 1935. And of course, we're now 1 month into Russia's invasion of Ukraine as the war continues and the suffering multiplies in Ukraine. Also, the president of the United States and NATO leaders held a summit in Belgium. The president of the United States noted that if, for whatever reason, uh, Russia deploys chemical weapons, that um, that NATO will, in fact, respond. But again, they were unclear about what response looks like. And again, uh, things seem to continue to ratchet up as far as, as, far as worry over whether or not um, this war will escalate. But of course, at this summit, the United States and the NATO allies, according to ChristianHeadlines.com, Um, remain strong and united as ever in standing against Russia's unprovoked attack on Ukraine. The president said today, following meetings in Belgium and Poland with the the leaders of NATO and the G7 and the European Union. So the White House called it an extraordinary NATO summit. The in-person meeting was held one month after the troops crossed into Ukraine and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky addressed the leaders virtually. And of course, NATO headquarters is in Brussels, Belgium. Um, the president was uh, recorded as saying, re- reiterating our strong support for the Ukrainian people, determination to hold. Uh, Russia accountable for the war and our commitment to strengthening the NATO alliance. So the United States in recent weeks has now announced an additional $1 billion in security assistance to Ukraine, and a White House senior administration official said Zelensky during his address to Biden and other leaders, quote, repeated his request for continued and increased uh, Western security assistance. Uh, there was a person um, who is the head of the European Union who was asked, where Zelensky basically asked the NATO countries to give them 1% of their tanks, give them 1% of their, their, their air force, give them 1% of their total um, military capability. And um, it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen. And, of course, the president reaffirmed America's support for NATO's Article 5, which holds that in an attack against one ally, it's considered an attack against all allies. I wish it were that simple, but apparently Article 5 is a little bit more nuanced than that. There seems to be a great deal of wiggle room in Article 5, that might be exploited down the line. Ukraine borders multiple NATO countries, including Romania, Slovakia, and Hungary. And, of course, the president gave a very strong message of support for NATO, and he talked about um, reinforcing the security of NATO. He also met with the Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg – and discuss the unity and strength of the alliance and NATO's ongoing efforts to deter deter and defend against any aggression. So lots going on, 303-873-1935. That's my number if you'd like to join me on the program, 303-873-1935. Producer Jim is standing by to take your call. It's easy to do. You just pick up that phone, you dial the number 303-873-1935, and happy, happy to take your call or question about God, the historical Jesus or some difficult Bible passage. Also, um, there's an important um, development at the Supreme Court level. I don't know if you knew this, but months and months ago, I reported about a Texas death row inmate who wanted to have his pastor lay hands on him, and pray for him during his execution. And so this was one of those situations where, again, um, they denied the death row inmate his request. They filed suit. The Supreme Court actually agreed to hear the case. And today, today, March 24th, the United States Supreme Court sided with the Texas death row inmate again, who wanted his pastor to pray over him and lay hands on him during his execution. The state of Texas had blocked both requests by inmate John Ramirez, who was on death row for a murder he committed in 2004. And Ramirez alleged that the state's refusal to let his pastor pray out loud over him and lay hands on him while he was being executed by lethal Injection violates the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act and the First Amendment. Now that Act, Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Person Act, um, it's also known as RLUIPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. The RLUIPA is a federal law that prohibits the government from imposing quote, a substantial burden on the religious exercise of a person residing or confined in an institution, unquote. So a district court in the United States Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals denied the request by Ramirez, but the United States Supreme Court, in a rare eight to one decision that's as close to 9 as you get these days. But in an 8-1 decision authored by Chief Justice John Roberts, ruled in his favor. It says, quote, We hold that Ramirez is likely to prevail on the merits of his R-L-U-I-P-A claims and that the other preliminary injunction factors justify relief, Roberts wrote. So Ramirez had said in his grievance that, quote, It's a part of my faith— to have my spiritual advisor lay hands on me anytime I'm sick or dying. His spiritual advisor in this particular case is a person named uh, Dana Moore, Pastor Dana Moore of the Second Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, had said prayer accompanied by touch is a significant part of our faith as Baptists, unquote. So the Supreme Court said that there is a rich history of clerical prayer at the time of a person's execution, dating back well before the founding of our nation, unquote. And during the Revolutionary War, General George Washington ordered that prisoners under sentence of death be attended with such chaplains as they choose, including at the time of their execution, Justice John Roberts wrote. These chaplains often spoke and prayed with the condemned during their final moments, unquote. This is a rich victory, if you will, for religious liberty and the reinforcement of religious liberty. I'll have more to say about this when we come back. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. I'll be right back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. And uh, before we went to the break, I was telling you about a case that was decided by the Supreme Court about an inmate who uh, basically appealed uh, the fact that he was denied access to his pastor, to pray for him and lay hands on him during his execution what's interesting is that the state of texas had blocked the request and their reasoning in blocking the request was they thought that it would cause a significant disruption to the process of his execution and so the supreme court justice basically addressed that issue. He said, quote, you know, uh, in terms of as far as physically touching a, a death row inmate during the execution, the Supreme Court acknowledged there is a, quote, compelling interest in preventing disruptions, but said, quote, there is no indication in the record that Pastor Moore would cause the sort of disruptions that the state fears. And so the Beckett Fund, who I'm very familiar with, for religious liberty, which filed an amicus uh, brief defending Ramirez, applauded the decision. Eric Rosbach, the vice president and senior counsel at Beckett said, quote, even the condemned have a right to get right with God. Isn't that a great statement? Even the condemned have a right to get right with God. He also said, this is Eric Rossbach, he said, quote, the Supreme Court correctly recognized that allowing clergy to minister to the condemned in their last moment stands squarely within a history stretching back to George Washington and before that tradition matters, unquote. Now, this is all very, very interesting to me because, again, when— George Washington was named the head of the Continental Army. His first act, not his second or third act, his first act as the head of the Continental Army was to establish chaplains. Now, I think that that's an important, important point. I I had the great privilege of serving as a chaplain for multiple law enforcement agencies in colorado and also for uh the denver division of the fbi it was a great privilege and um but again it's the idea that police officers in particular law enforcement specifically um, military they're in great difficult situations and george washington as a quote-unquote survivor of the French-Indian Wars, knew what it was like to have to tell mothers and daughters that their husband, that their father, that their brother was dead. He understood the mental, the emotional, but also the spiritual implications of such a thing. So good on him. 303 873 That's the number. If you want to join me on the program, happy to take your call. And again, if you have a specific question about God, about the historical Jesus, about the Bible, would love to take your call. 303-873-1935. A couple of other things that are going on in the news um, that I wanted to bring to your attention. And I was reluctant to... um, literally report on um, the Hillsong fiasco, but Hillsong Atlanta pastor, um, the, the lead pastor of Hillsong church in Atlanta announced his resignation on Wednesday, but there was a growing list of scandals that were associated with this particular person. He, of course, the founder, Brian Houston, um, And Sam Collier said, it is with great sadness that I inform you of my departure from Hillsong. This is um, Pastor Sam Collier. Now, again, Brian Houston has resigned. Sam Collier has resigned. Collier, who's also an author... An advisor to the King family and the founder of A Greater Story Ministries explained that he's leaving because of documentaries, scandals, articles, accusations about Hillsong and the church's subsequent mismanagement. But he used the term management of these attacks. He said, quote, I have no shame in admitting I cried like a baby moments after I informed the Hillsong global pastor of my department. Parcher. He noted, I truly love Hillsong family and believe they will get through this storm and come out better than they were before. And according to the Christian Post, Hillsong Atlanta was launched in October 2020 with Collier and his wife, Tony, who previously served at North Point Community Church in Atlanta, where Andy Stanley was the lead uh, pastor. Collier, the first African-American to lead a Hillsong church, announced that he will hold his final service at Hillsong uh, this Sunday that he'll be launching a new church called Story Church on Easter Sunday. Uh, by by On the same day as Collier's resignation, the Hillsong board confirmed that founder uh, Brian Houston has resigned. And so, again, Houston was first accused of sending inappropriate texts to a former female Hillsong staffer, He was then accused of engaging in inappropriate behavior during Hillsong's annual conference in 2019, and then Houston allegedly spent 40 minutes in another woman's hotel room while he was drunk. He had also taken prescription drugs beyond the prescribed dose, and these and other things basically led to his resignation. So obviously, it's always sad and difficult when you have scandals among pastors um, in the church. And, you know, people often will ask those questions. Well, why are there so many prominent pastors who are involved in scandals? Why are there so many telev- televangelist scandals? Um, And, of course, that great question, can restoration occur after a pastor has been caught in a scandal? And, of course, this is a question that I get asked quite frequently, and happy, happy, happy to talk about that. 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the program Uh, 303-873-1935. But to that question, can restoration occur after a pastor's been caught in a scandal? It's fortunate that we have a great article at gotquestions.org. At gotquestions.org, your questions, biblical answers, we've posted an answer to that question that I hope that you will find helpful. Let me share it with you in part. It says, Part of what makes the issue of pastoral restoration so difficult is that every case is different. Making a blanket statement to cover all circumstances doesn't seem possible. If we say, quote, a pastor who commits adultery can be restored to his pastoral position, if he says he's sorry, then we are at best foolishly, ignoring the need for genuine repentance. But if we say, quote, a pastor who commits adultery can never be restored to a pastoral position anywhere or any time, then we seem to ignore the grace and forgiveness available to all believers in Christ, according to Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 and 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. The middle ground is to say a pastor can be restored to his original position under certain circumstances, and that requires us to precisely identify those certain circumstances. So I'll have more on this, inviting you to call 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303 Eight seven three nineteen thirty five, and of course we were talking a little bit about um, the news, and of course Hillsong pastor in Atlanta resigns. Now he's not resigning because he himself was involved in a scandal, but because of the continual church scandals of his so-called fellowship of churches, or what we might call um, the churches, you know, I, I'm, I don't know if it's fair to call Hillsong a quote unquote denomination, but, uh, Sam Collier, um, wrote on his Instagram account that it is with great sadness that I inform you of my departure from Hillsong. Now, again, he was talking about some of the scandal that surrounded Brian Houston and, um, I've been reluctant to talk about Brian Houston, Um, but his resignation followed several revelations that Houston engaged in, well, uh, immoral behavior. And um, so to their credit, Hillsong at least... um, exercise a degree of accountability in ensuring that he would resign. Um, But again, it, in a separate incident in 2019, Brian Houston reported, spent, well, I don't want to get into the dirty details, but to, to make a long story short, he has stepped down from his duties as the senior pastor to focus on the legal charges, in part, that, was, that he was facing allegedly for concealing his father's sexual abuse of children and taking Houston's place, our interim pastors, uh, Phil and Lucinda Dooley of Hillsong, South Africa. And so um, we were asking the million-dollar question. And the million-dollar question, of course, is can restoration occur after a pastor has been involved in a scandal? And we talked very briefly about that we have to take each case under advisement. You, you have to evaluate everyone individually. To make a blanket statement is very, very difficult. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted and in first john maybe many of you know this by heart because you've gone to this passage so many times if we confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and in second corinthians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 Paul talks about the restoration of a particularly painful situation. Now, again, in the in context, it wasn't dealing with a pastor's sin. It was dealing with a congregant sin, which led to church discipline, where Paul writes, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. You should rather turn and forgive and comfort him. Now, what's interesting about that passage of Scripture, it gives us insight into church discipline. Now, church discipline is something that very rarely will people call me and ask about. We live in a culture and a society where church discipline seems lost in, in order for church discipline to take place, there has to be a biblical view of what it means to belong to and participate in a church. So church discipline in part is the process of correcting sinful behavior among members of a local church, For the purpose of protecting the church, but not just protecting the church, but restoring the sinner in order for that individual, that man or that woman, so that they will have a right relationship with the Lord, that they can renew their fellowship among the church congregation or the members. And in some cases, church discipline can obviously lead to excommunication, which is the formal removal of an individual from church membership and the informal separation from that individual. Now, obviously in order to, I'm going to suggest to you in order to have church discipline, you have to have church membership. Now, what church membership means might be different in different churches, but there has to be some sort of meaningful relationship that a person in the church has with the church so again if you'd like to join me on the the program it's 303 873 1935 and i've been asked this a lot about matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20 where you know it talks about if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others among you that um, every charge may be confirmed, and you know by two or three witnesses. So basically, what that does it it's a calculation, if you will, to exercise discipline. In ever-increasing ways, because the idea is that if a person as a Christian will hear a brother and ask the question, you know, what does the Bible say about this? And if the person says, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't, I don't care what you say, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't care what the church says, it's going to be very, very difficult to treat that person like a Christian— If they, in effect, refuse to embrace what the Bible says about the subject, if they refuse to embrace what the leadership of their church says about the subject. And so, again, Jesus instructs us that one individual, usually the offended party, is to go to the offending party individually, privately, if you will. And if the offender refused to acknowledge his sin and repent, then two or three others go to confirm the details of the situation. If there's still no repentance, the offender remains firmly attached to his or her sin. Despite these opportunities to repent, the matter's taken to the church. Now, again, there's nothing in the text that says, and it has to be done in a day or two days or in a month or two months, you know, sometimes the Bible actually does say give people space to repent, but there seems to be an indication that there's still a measure of repentance that needs to be present. And if there's still no repentance, the offender remains firmly attached to his or her sin, then you take the matter before the church. So at this point, the offender has yet another chance to repent and forsake the sinful behavior. If at any point in the process of church discipline, the sinner heeds the call to repent, then according to verse 15, it says, you've gained your brother. That's in Matthew 18. So however, if the discipline continues all the way to the third step without a positive response from the offender, Then Jesus says, Let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector in verse 17. What does Jesus mean by that? I think what it means is you're to treat them like an unbeliever. But I don't think it means that you're to be rude or mean or weird or mean spirited. What do you do with your unbelieving family and friends? You give them the gospel. This is Gino Geraci three zero three eight seven three nineteen thirty five. I'll be back taking your calls, answering your questions. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci and Lee Strobel. If you're listening, I heard the story. It's it's public knowledge that uh, Lee uh, Strobel is telling the story that. Uh, <laughs> he lost his wallet in my old hometown of new orleans he says quote we prayed the case for christ author lee strobel lost his wallet and cash but a good samaritan left him praising the lord apparently he lost his wallet last week in a new orleans airport i've been there it's louis armstrong which meant his driver's license, his credit card, cash, all went missing until a good Samaritan stepped in to remedy the situation. The Case for Christ author told CBN's Faith Wire, he accidentally dropped his wallet on a bench at a car rental facility. His flight was canceled, so he and his wife Leslie were trying to make a plan. He said, quote, we sat on a bench in the lobby, and I called a hotel near the airport to book a room for the night. Strobel said, I took out my wallet to give my credit card number to the hotel, and apparently I accidentally dropped the wallet on the bench. It was later on the shuttle bus to the hotel that I realized that my wallet was gone, he said. Lee Strobel, of course, is preparing for the release of his new Case for Heaven documentary. We had him on this program talking about the book, The Case for Heaven, but we haven't had a chance to talk about Um, The Case for Heaven documentary. I can't wait to see it. I think my friend Doug Groteis might be in this documentary. But he says he was saddened to have lost his identification, credit cards, insurance cards, license, you know, knowing he's going to need these for his upcoming trips. He said, we prayed we would find the wallet. Then we went back to the rental car facility we looked everywhere. We couldn't find it. Unfortunately, the wallet was nowhere to be found. That's when Leslie said, maybe a Christian found it, and he will mail it back to you, which <laughs> Lee Strobel said, yeah, right. <laughs> but then something incredible happened that derailed the former atheist's skepticism. The Strovels flew home Monday night, received a FedEx package. Tuesday morning, containing his wallet and a letter. In addition to the cards, Strobel said the $200 in cash he had in his wallet was still inside. It says, a small package arrived at our house via Federal Express inside the wallet. Thank God, Lee Strobel said. And there was a short letter from a California man and his wife who'd been visiting New Orleans with their daughter, who will be a freshman at LSU next year. The letter read, quote, my wife, daughter, and me were picking up our rental car and found your wallet on the bench. We scrambled and looked everywhere for you. I'm sure this loss was concerning. Please find your wallet and everything in order. Strobel called the man to thank him for his honesty and for going out of his way to send the wallet back. A simple act of kindness in a crazy world is just the kind of thing that you can have to restore confidence in humanity and remember goodness. That from Faithwire. And, of course, maybe, maybe Jimbo, we might give Lee a little bit of a call and talk about that uh, upcoming documentary that he's going to have uh, on the case for heaven. And, of course, you know, we're making our way— through the season that's going to lead up to Resurrection Sunday. And I've spent a great deal of my life talking about the subject of the resurrection. And it remains, to me at least, one of the most satisfying investigations that I have ever done. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Pam, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, Gino. Hi. I am back after a year and a half. I've well, been in New York. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm I'm on I seventy almost up to Denver now. I drove. Oh wow. Um but anyway I've been there taking care of my mother and my aunt who is ninety one. God and bless I'm, her. They, uh, You know, I'm so frustrated because she's been going to church, the same family church, for years. But she still is unsure of what's going to happen when she dies.
1: Yeah, and isn't that sad and frustrating because the Bible gives us so much assurance?
2: I know. And she says, well, some people think they know, but nobody Really
1: know. You know, and here's what I would say. I would say, let's just challenge that for just a moment. You said nobody really knows. I would ask her, I would say, have you ever heard of the Apostle John? And what do you mm-hmm. think she'd say? Yeah. And then he'd say, if anyone really knew about what happens when you die do you think if jesus told the apostle john and then the apostle john came into your room and told you would you believe him mm-hmm. because in first john chapter 5 verse 11 this is what john wrote and this is the testimony god has given us eternal life and this life is in his son if that's true now john wrote that and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, not temporary life, not probationary life. Why would John lie about something so important? And then he said, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The biggest question you need to ask yourself is, do you have the Son of God in your life? And you do, or you don't.
2: Right. You know, unfortunately, the church that she goes to, they don't offer an invitation. What they do is, they read uh, something,
1: uh-huh. and,
2: and then and then uh, that. Oh, you know, we know that we are part, or that we are this and we are that. And he goes, so know that you all are pardoned. I pardon you all. Well,
1: you and know what I I would I would do if I were you. <laughs> I would ask your aunt some very simple questions. They're yes or no questions. Are you ready? Yep. They're easy to remember, too. Okay. The the first question I would ask is, are you a sinner? What do you suppose she's going to say? You know, you just talked about nobody can know stuff for sure. She knows for sure. She knows for sure if she's a sinner.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: What do you think the answer would be?
2: I think she's going to say, well, I try to be a good person. Well,
1: and here's what I would say. I would say, let's just for purposes of discussion, say that you really do try to be a good person. But have you ever lied even once? Have you ever stolen anything, no matter how small? Um, right. And And hopefully she would say, you know, something like, what... What do you call a sure. person? Yeah. <laughs> what do you call a person who tells lies? A liar. What do you call a person who's a thief? Or excuse me, who steals? Right. A, a thief. thief. Then I would ask her this simple question: Do you want forgiveness for your sins? And and again, this isn't you know. Do you know for sure? Uh, in a sense, it is. You know if you want forgiveness or not. Do you or don't yeah. you? Right, And then I would ask her, do you believe that Jesus died on that cross for you and rose again? And if she says right. yes, then I would say, are you willing to surrender your life to Christ? And if she says yes, then I would say, well, are you ready to invite Jesus into your heart? And then pray with her. Yeah. Heavenly Father, I've sinned against you. I want forgiveness for my sins. I believe that Jesus died and rose. I want you to have my life. Life, I want Jesus in my life.
2: My sister thinks th- that that's what God's waiting for.
1: Yes, it's that because simple.
2: She wants to go, she wants to die. She can hardly hear, she can hardly see, she can't smell anything. Um, yeah,
1: she's ready to go home. Yeah, <laughs> hey, I gotta go, but thank you so much and drive safely. Okay,
2: oh, thank you. I'm so, I'm so glad to hear your voice again. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Hey, when I come back, I'll take more calls, answer more questions. Three star
0: general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.